0: we just settle ourselves this morning. I'm glad that you could all make it today. It's wonderful to see you. Um, I've taken and we're going to extend into the second half of Psalm 22. For those of you that were here for Good Friday, we covered the first 18 verses. It only took us about two hours and 45 minutes. So I should, should have you out of here well before lunch. For those of you who are now panicked, who don't know me, that's okay. We'll be out of here in long before then. But, as is common practice for us here, if you could all please stand as we just go into the scriptures this morning. I'm going to read the second half of Psalm 22. King David wrote for us, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. This is God's word. You may be seated. Just a simple prayer from the common book of prayer, because I think it says it very nicely this morning. But Father, as we come before you, We are chiefly bound to praise you for the glorious resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. For he is the true Passover lamb who was sacrificed for us and has taken away the sins of the world. By his death, he has destroyed death itself. And by his rising to life again, he has won for us everlasting life. Father, we come before you this morning. In Jesus' name, just open your word. Amen. I do my best to work our way through this in part two of what I called forsaken and redeemed. This morning, we're going to take a look at the redeemed portion. We left last Friday um, in a rather ugly way. Um, This morning, we, we find ourselves in a different position. I want us to really be focusing on that redemption for us. Redemption for us comes through the forsaken son. Redemption for us comes through the forsaken son. Divine love, which has been our theme this entire Lenten season, is seen clearly when God himself, through his Son, does for us what we could never do on our own. That's what we're going to be taking a look at today. In a book that I have in my library titled The Day the Revolution Began, N.T. Wright says this, When Jesus of Nazareth died the horrible death of crucifixion at the hands of the Roman army, nobody thought him a hero. His movement was over. Pretty firm, isn't it? Nobody thought him a hero. His movement was over. Nothing had changed. This was the sort of thing that Rome did best. Caesar was on his throne. Death, as usual, had the last word. Except that in this case, it didn't. As Jesus' followers looked back on that day, they came up with a shocking, scandalous, nonsensical claim that his death had launched a revolution. By 6 p.m. that dark Friday, the world was a different place. We learned that Friday evening. They believed that with the event, the one true God had suddenly and dramatically put into operation his plan for the rescue of the world. They saw it as the day their revolution began. Friday evening, for those of you who gathered here with us, ended with the cry of Jesus on the cross saying, my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? That moment of pain for him, that moment of abandonment that he had never felt in all of eternity when the Father turned his face away in order that Jesus could be what he needed to be for us. That moment would have been lost in history. We would have never known who this Jesus of Nazareth was. It would have been seen as an evil act, a malevolent act, and frankly just a bitter, nasty, horrible event in history were it not for the Sunday morning after that Friday on a hill outside of the city of Jerusalem. That moment when the two ladies of all people, I say this every year, this is my fifth Easter remembrance, two ladies because the men were so bold as to be hiding behind the door with the lock. The ladies were there. The moment the angels declared to them when they showed up, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid for I seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for you seek Jesus who is crucified, for he is risen, as he said. This event shouldn't have been a shock, but it was. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. Amazing how the first apostles were what? Say it with me, it's okay. Women. It's all right, guys. Women. It's okay to understand that. It's a moment in time in history, isn't it? It's a beautiful time. The divine story of redemption, written at the hands of men, moved along by God's Holy Spirit over the years, telling of how he would fix what his image bearers had broken from the dawn of time. He would take care of that. For in the moment of Jesus' forsakenness, this redemption that we learn about this morning of humanity has been secured. How do we know that? What is the proof of that? It wasn't his ministry, and it wasn't his miracles. Nobody ever doubts his ministry or miracles. Anybody who talks about Jesus will tell you that he was a good guy. It wasn't the declaration that the kingdom of God had finally arrived. That was not what proved it. And that this is what it looks like when heaven and earth come together once again, or heaven breaks in upon the way the earth is. That was not what proved that Jesus was who he said he was, and that he was the redeemer for all humanity. The proof was the empty tomb. The proof was the empty tomb. Psalm 22 that David wrote for us, as painful as portions of it are, end with a promise and ends with victory. It ends with a promise and it ends with victory. You see, it begins to turn that corner in the middle of the psalm where we left off Friday night in verses 19 to 21. And you'll have to either turn to your gadgets or your Bible because I intentionally didn't have a PowerPoint today so that we could just be focused on what we have in front of us. But we are in Psalm 22 verses 19 to 21. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Boy, doesn't that sound like a cry that Daniel had? But that's another story for another time. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. You see, David here writes about the purposes and the plans of God in being forsaken, in being mocked and brutalized. But at the same time, David in his writing sees his hand, God's hand, of redemption. In the midst of this ugly prophetic vision that he has, he is seeing God's hand of redemption in the midst of it all. Because the reality is, and I have said this before, I will continue to say this, nobody in their right mind, no writer, not the best writer on planet earth of fiction would ever come up with such a story as this. Never. Why is that? There's a good reason for it. Because this story is too bizarre not to be true it's just too bizarre not to be true another thing and most importantly I think is for us to understand this in this story the hero actually looks like the villain the hero looks like the villain he actually looks like the failed villain in the call to save the villains who see themselves as the heroes in the story for getting rid of this rogue preacher and prophet that's a bizarre turn of events The very hero is hung as a villain. You see, when you spend about three years of your life in ministry on this planet, which still divides the entire world, by the way, we opened in prayer for Sri Lanka, it wasn't unintentional that three churches were targeted on Easter Sunday when they would be the most filled with Christians looking to worship Jesus. So when you spend three years of your life in a ministry that still to this day divides the entire world, not just a tiny little strip of land the size of New Jersey in the Middle East, telling and showing people that you are the Messiah, only to die this brutal, excruciating, ugly death at the hands of the enemies whom you are supposed to vanquish and liberate your people from, it is a not a hard sell to think at all that you lost, that we lost, That did not end the way we were expecting it to end. Be patient with people who don't believe this story because it's a bizarre story and it doesn't make any sense without the help of the Holy Spirit in understanding what's really going on here. Be patient with people who don't believe. For all intents and purposes, when you were the king hanging there and you cry out, why? Why have you forsaken me? It doesn't exactly look like you've won the day, does it? That's Good Friday. You look cursed. That's what it looks like because that's what Jesus was. He was absolutely cursed. He was just another man full of delusions of grandeur, as this big hero coming in that the powers that be disposed of because he was a general nuisance and he was causing riots and ruckuses everywhere he went, just like all the others that most of us don't even know the name of down through time and history. Deuteronomy 21, we have this from the pen of Moses, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, His body shall not remain all night on the tree but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is a cursed man. In their mind's eye including his disciples the struggle was is that how could that on the middle cross be the Messiah he claimed to be if this is what the word of God says about a person who's hung on a tree. There's no way that that can be our king. There's no way that that ...can be our Messiah. There's no way that that is the person... ...who's going to win the victory against the Romans. No, he was disposed of... ...just like everybody else. There is no king but Caesar... ...would be the cry of the day. This world never has any king but Caesar. Oh, they come by different names. But this world has a king... ...and it's Caesar. There's no God but us. We are our own God. We are masters of our own destiny... Look at him. This one you followed for three years, look at him. Just hanging there, broken, beaten. He don't even look human. He can't even save himself. He raised people from the dead. He gave sight to the blind. He healed those who were sick. He can't even save himself. He's nothing but cursed by this God. There he is. And you know what? They were right. They were absolutely right. But they were right for all the wrong reasons. They were right for all the wrong reasons. He could never save himself because he was not meant to save himself. See, Alistair Begg puts it this way. That Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, in his sovereignty, utilized his absolute free will to lay down his sovereignty And walk to that cross on our behalf because that is what was needed. He couldn't save himself because he didn't need to save himself because this was the plan all along. There was no need to be saved. He wasn't meant to. He was cursed of God, but not because he was a failure and a false prophet, not because he was this guy that just kind of went weird on everybody and the Romans needed to dispatch him. In fact, it was just the opposite. Psalm 22 and 24, speaking of the father toward the son, David records for us this, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Is something that we need to understand. He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. You see, God's response to the cry of Jesus, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The great plot twist in this entire story. God may have turned away because God had to turn away. But he did not hide his face. He did not stop his ears. He could not look upon sin, but he heard the cry of his son. Because it was purposeful in what was going on. He heard and he accepted that derelict cry, as they say, of his son. Why have you forsaken me? Because it had to be that way. There was no other choice. Divine love is seen there. Divine love. God made a covenant with Abraham years and years ago before then. And he walked through that cut covenant on his own. Because he knew we couldn't do it. And what is happening here is he is fulfilling the covenant promise of our failure. Divine love. The son says, I will willingly put down what it is belongs to me. And we know this because Paul tells us that. That's how. Galatians chapter 3. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by what? Becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. We have two so that's in that text. If you underline in your Bible or you circle, I'd suggest you do that because that means that there's a reason why Christ became a curse. Number one, so that in him the blessings of Abraham might come to Gentiles. That's us. That's our way in. And the second reason is so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. We become sons and daughters of the King and we receive the Spirit. God's intention from the beginning was to make a family of his own of called Jews and Gentiles together, and that's what's happening. Jesus became sin so we could be made right because we were wrong. That's what was going on there. What is the proof of that? Again, an empty tomb. Nobody argues the fact that there was nobody in that tomb. The debate is what happened to the guy that was there Friday night? That's the question that we have to wrestle with. You see, because history swings on the hinge of the actions of Good Friday and that day and that Sunday Easter morning, that resurrection day, the moment death was killed. That's what history swings on. And the stone was rolled away. We have to take a look at that and we have to bring answer to what happened there. I love this quote. I read it pretty much every Easter, so you're just going to have to bear with me. You know, much like I'm thinking of Don Francisco and the song they're singing, I'm just dating myself. I'm not old, but I'm getting there. Chuck Colson, some of you might be young enough to remember who he is. You know, The, the, the guy who is guilty of Watergate infamy. Um, one of the things he once said was you know, they couldn't believe that he was a Christian and he did the things that he did. He smiled at them and said, could you imagine what I would have been like if I wasn't? But anyway, <laughs> moving on to this. He understood the darkness of men's hearts. You know, here we go. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Okay, you don't think that's a big deal? Well, here we go. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. No human being in their right mind would do that. Colson continues, Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. They all fell apart under pressure. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Colson says, absolutely impossible. Absolutely impossible. It's crazy, isn't it? Of course it is. Why? Because dead people And I've done funerals, mind you. Dead people, at least the ones that I have come in contact with, don't live again. They stay dead. Anybody who knows anything knows that once you are dead, you are dead. Even way back then, in Jesus' day, people were smart enough to know that. They were not unenlightened country bumpkins. The Enlightenment age, coming out of the late 1800s and into the 1900s and to today puts us in a position to think that they were just too stupid to think that, you know, dead people don't rise from the dead. That's not true. We enlightened people have learned to split the atom, haven't we? We've gone to the moon. We've explored the entire known universe with satellites and all kinds of other things and been able to map all that stuff out. And yet every single morning we get up and we can read the newspaper and we understand that as a race, we don't even know what it means to be human. We have no idea what it means to be kind one to another. We have no idea what it means to learn to live on the only place in the known universe that we can understand we have the capacity to live. So why would we destroy it? Oh, because God's going to give us a new one. That's dumb. If I may say so. That's how enlightened we are. Sometimes we even struggle how to maintain basic family unions or what a union in a family even looks like anymore. Yet we are the enlightened ones. You see, intelligence and wisdom are not the same thing. When we look at the resurrection, we need wisdom. You see, intelligence does not guarantee wisdom. What we need is humility to grow wisdom. We need humility to grow wisdom. It doesn't mean we want to be unintelligent. It just means intelligence does not guarantee wisdom. Intelligence, actually, without wisdom, creates a lot of dangerous things. But that's, again, for another time because I'm running out. Humility is needed to grow wisdom, and humility is lacking very deeply in this world today, as it was in Jesus' day, but not in this Jewish carpenter. Not in this rogue from the north. No, we find out that Jesus humbled himself. In the opening text that I read when we got started this morning, Paul tells us in this beautiful poem that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is humility. It's a beautiful poem that he pours out there. Jesus' vindication is there. The fact that Jesus emptied himself of everything he deserved to take on what we deserved in order that we can get what he gave up. It's a beautiful story. We would have never, ever once, never once thought to write it ourselves in this way. You see, that is why God heard his cry. Because Jesus was obedient and humble to the death You see, we think that he didn't hear because Jesus died. That's the problem. When our prayers aren't answered the way we want them to be answered, we think that God doesn't hear. The frightening truth is that he hears everything, including the snarky comments we make that we don't think anybody hears. I know, because he tells me all the time he heard that. (laughs) He died because God did hear him. He died because God accepted that sacrifice of humility. Heaven broke into our world again and intersected with earth and Jesus walked out of the tomb. That's what it looks like when heaven and earth are put back together the way they're supposed to be. Dead people come alive. A lot of people say it, I'll say it this morning, that Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people live. And we are all dead in one way or another. You see, and if Jesus is alive, and that is true, that this Jesus of Nazareth is, he has to be dealt with. In fact, he has to be confronted. The claims that he made have to be tested and confronted because we are not left with an option to ignore this Jesus. There's nowhere in Scripture, nowhere, anywhere that says we have the option to ignore him. If you are in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus here this morning when you encounter him in the word and when you encounter him in prayer and when you encounter him in worship and you come before him, do you allow yourself to be encountered by him? Or do we just come to him and unload on him? Do you allow him to encounter you and chisel away at the things that need to be taken away in order that we can be conformed to the likeness of him? Because that's the ultimate goal of what God has for us, to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, because that makes us truly human. That allows us to be released into the world in a way that magnifies Him and glorifies His name. Do you allow Him to encounter you? Do you allow Him to transform you so that you can be useful for the purposes that He has gifted you in, the calling that He has for you in this life? Do you allow Him to? All the ends of the earth, Psalm 22, 27, and 28 say, shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Teach us to pray, Lord, was my thought this morning. Teach us to pray big prayers. Not just for my brother, my sister, my dog, my mother, and my little town. The scriptures commands that we are to pray for the nations because that's what Jesus died for, that's whom he rules over. If we aren't praying for the nations, we aren't praying big enough. That doesn't mean everybody has to go out and be a missionary. For goodness sake, they're going to be preaching to chairs. What that means is that we have to be prayerful for the nations. Give us the nations, Lord. Why? Because that's who Jesus died for. That's the point of the scriptures here. Kingship belongs to the Lord. Don't be so arrogant to think that people who are sitting in places of power, that kingship belongs to them. They are there because God's sovereign hand says they can be here. See, all of this happened first, all because of what Jesus did. All because of what he did. He redeemed us, but he did so in order to send us. Go, therefore, into where? All the world. The nations. That's our verse for 2019. It's funny how Psalm 22 runs right into Matthew 28. Actually, it's not. It's God's story. It makes perfect sense. Jesus submitted himself to the plan and the will of the Father because they are absolutely perfect. We can choose now to do the same. Or not. It's entirely up to us. But make no mistake. If we choose not to submit to the will of God now, we will then. And the question won't be asked. Where's your heart in all this? It's going to be known. So we can willingly choose now. Let's look at Psalm 22:29. 29. What does it say? All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all who go to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. The whole earth will worship and bow down. Even as Jesus did. And that's why we have what happens in Philippians 2. You see, even on the one who could not keep himself alive, that's who David is talking about. He couldn't keep himself alive because he wasn't intended to. You can't rise from the dead if you aren't first dead. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, Paul tells us in Philippians 2. His perfect obedience brings that about. And that's important for us to understand if we are in Christ. If we are to be like Jesus, this is what we are supposed to be like. If you've never considered Jesus and you're here, either under duress or because you've decided that it's today you're supposed to be here, I want to say to you either way, that is the Holy Spirit who is calling you. Nobody just shows up to church by accident. We think it is. How do I know this? Because his word promises that. His word promises that he will draw people to himself. And we can only do one of two things with this Jesus. And this is to those of you who have never committed yourself to him. I want you to hear this. We can only do one of two things. We can accept him or we can reject him. There is no middle ground. We don't have the option to ignore him and simply think that he was a good man who did some good things for a short amount of time in some country far off, but his life tragically ended too soon at the hands of the Romans who hung him on a tree. That's not an option. No, his cry of being forgiven takes us all the way to the end of Psalm 22 because that is the intended end of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David records posterity. Our history shall serve Him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn, that He has done it. Before I go any further, I'd like to have the worship team come up. If we could at this point also wake up the children... And dismiss the kids, those of you who are under 12 years of age. The rest of you children need to stay. So Bob, sit down. (laughs) As we settle here this morning. And we end this Easter service. I want to read that verse one more time so we can be focused on that. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. You see, the entire purpose of verse 1 in Psalm 22 was in order that we can get to verses 30 and 31. Because guess what? This makes perfect sense. We are that future generation. 2,000 years on, 6,000 miles away. Had Jesus not been forsaken by God the Father, history would not have recorded what happened. It would have been lost to time. But God's plan was that his son be rejected. To die at the hands of those who were very willing to kill him. In order that he could rise from the dead. So that history would declare and serve him so as we sit here this morning i proclaim to you that he has done it just like the scripture says he has done it the question is is are you willing to step into that truth that he has done it that this jesus this jesus this rogue carpenter was crucified On a hill outside of the city of Jerusalem. He was laid in a borrowed tomb. Nobody debates these things. And he has risen from the dead. He's calling you today. Even if you know him, he's still calling you today. Are there things you can lay down before him? If you don't know him, he's calling you today. The scripture says, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Because that is the Holy Spirit. Listen, because you don't know if tomorrow comes. And I close with this as we all stand in the prayer teams. Please take their place. I implore you. I implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Let's stand.